Listening to KKUP Cupertino 91.5 FM in the Bay Area and beyond the Bay Area at KKUP.org. That was a swing shift. Um, some great, great music. Um, and if you tune in on Wednesday nights, you know that after swing and after all of the fly is done, um, it's my turn. And my turn means poetry hour. But before poetry, I'm going to play you some music. Um, this song is called Angelus, and it's by Elliot Smith. And I picked it because my guest tonight is Angie Chuang. And um, I met Angie in Los Angeles, so I thought it was perfect. So here you go. Here's some music. So that track was 
Angelus by Elliot Smith from his album Either Or, one of my most favorite albums. Um, and that song is probably one of my favorites as well. So I'm happy to share it with you. Um, I've been gone for a couple of weeks. My husband and I went on a trip to Europe, but I'm back and I'm back with some poetry. Uh, actually, tonight is not poetry. It's a memoir. Um, I spoke with or I met Angie Chuang, who is a pressmate of mine from Willow Books um, at at a conference in Los Angeles. And I can't tell you how amazing her book is. Uh, her book is called The Four Words for Home. And this book just changed the way I think about um, so many things, particularly the way I think about Af Afghan immigrant families, um, the way Im immigration works in America, and the way, um, I mean, how brave journalists are going across the world and coming back with stories for us. So um, Angie Chung is, Chuang is an author and educator based in Washington, D.C., She's the author of The Four Words for Home, which is out of Willow Books. Um, and this book is a dual memoir about an Afghan immigrant family and her own Chinese-American family. And Angie is actually a Bay Area girl, so that's good for that. Even though she's in D.C. now, she's still one of ours. Um, <laughs> so the book, the book is the winner of the 2013 Willow Books Literature Award and Grand Prize in po Prose and has won an Independent Publishers Award Bronze Medal for Multicultural Nonfiction. Um, it's won a bunch of other prizes and been shortlisted for other things. Angie is an associate professor of journalism at American University School of Communication, and her literary nonfiction writing has appeared in Creative Nonfiction, The Asian American Literary Review, Vela, and several editions of The Best Women's Travel Writing. So here's my interview with Angie Chuang. I hope you enjoy. So, uh, yeah, I finished your book. Oh, wow. Thank you. Jeez. I am just in awe of the work that you've done. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, it's I haven't really, read anything really else of yours, just this piece so far, but... Um, this is really the main one. <laughs> so so you were the winner of the 2013 Willow Books Prize, right? In, in yeah. Prose? Yes, yes. It was the very first one that they ever did, the um, uh, the first Willow Books Literature Awards. Yeah. And so uh, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about what this book, where it came from and and all of that stuff? Sure, sure, absolutely. So um, it's a little bit embarrassing to say, but I worked on the book for probably about nine years before <laughs> it got published. So um, if there are, I always tell people, if there are people who feel like they've been working on a book for too long, there is, it is not too long. It is, the book needs to, needs to grow and develop and find its own life. And sometimes we have to grow and develop before we're ready to finish our books. Right. And so that was very much the case with mine. I uh, probably first imagined the book before I even knew I was writing the book, which mm -hmm. was when I went to Afghanistan with um, the family, that's the Shirzai family, mm -hmm. in 2004. At that point, I was very much in the mode of being a newspaper journalist. I had only written, um, to me, a long piece was a piece that was like a few thousand words and maybe it was a you know multiple day series in the paper that was a big right. project I didn't think I had the wherewithal or the attention span to finish um, a book length project and you, had never you sound like a poet to. yeah exactly <laughs> I actually started writing 
poetry because I mistakenly thought, oh, poetry is really good for people with short attention spans. But then I started writing it. I was like, damn, this is hard. Don't tell our secrets. Don't tell our secrets. I know. So it's actually ironic you brought that up because what happened was I um, went to Afghanistan, spent the roughly month or so there, had gotten really close to this family. And in my head, I started thinking like, oh my God, I have to write more. Like I have to write mm. about my relationship with them. I can't do that in the newspaper. I have to right. write about the time when um, the sisters in the family tried to marry me off to their brother. There was no <laughs> way to write that in the newspaper story, but it was so <laughs> it was so profound in so many ways. And I think I was frustrated that the narratives about Afghanistan, even the ones I had to tell from an objective newspaper perspective, were not really representing the real experience that I had there. It was a very limited, very, I think, kind of stereotypical Western-centric view of people in the country and the immigrants from that country. Right. Uh, We still see that now in the way that Muslim Americans and and many immigrants are, are portrayed in the media. Oh, for sure. I mean, that was one of the things I learned actually quite quickly when when we moved to China and my husband and I were living in the mainland. I realized that all of the ideas and all of the notions that even, you know, someone who studied and read before I moved to China, all of those things that I had from the Western perspective really didn't prepare me for the kinds of cultural richness that existed in China when we got there. Mm-hmm. And so you and must I'm- have experienced that in Afghanistan. Absolutely. Yes, yes. And even going in saying, I know that I um, have a limited view, and then you get immersed in the complexity of that. And, you know, even for a very short time on my part, but I think the family that I became close to was really an extension of that, that though they were American, um, Mm -hmm. that even the way in which they lived between cultures and between countries, uh, going back and forth really taught me a lot about um, both cultures. And so I was um, processing all of this. And at the time I was in a poetry workshop with um, a poet and a teacher that um, I'm still very fond of, David Weisbiel in Portland, Mm -hmm. Oregon. And I'm submitting these poems. And I keep just kind of cranking out more and more short poems about Afghanistan. And at one point during the workshop, he said, he said, you really just need to write your book. And I think mm. your book is prose. And, you know, that's fine that you're writing all these poems. But when a poem wants to be a book, it doesn't work as a poem. Wow. And it sort of took me aback. And I didn't, I wasn't hurt because I sort of felt like the poems weren't working. Mm-hmm. I already knew the poems weren't working. And I kind of was starting to get this feeling that maybe I wasn't really a poet. Maybe poetry was a mask for something I really wanted to do that wasn't poetry. And it was so funny because another poet in the class actually left the class because she was so insulted (laughs) that he had basically said, in her mind, he had said, you're not a poet. And her her assertion was like, never tell anyone they're not a poet. (laughs) And my feeling was that he didn't say I wasn't a poet. He said that you're trying to write something that's not a poem. Yeah. And he was right. And he was absolutely right. And then I kept turning in more poems <laughs> because I didn't know what else to do. And right. the last class, he I think he like made this dramatic gesture of reaching into his wallet. And he said, I will pay for you to do a memoir workshop <laughs> if you just 
go and write this. And, <laughs> and then, you know, we, we sat down after that over lunch and I think kind of mapped out like what a book would look like. And I kept telling myself like, oh, I can't write a book. It's too long. I'm never going to stick with it. It's too much work. Right. And, you know, and I think what I really needed to see was that poetry is also too much work too. And it neither... <laughs> And neither neither project was um, was going to come easily to me, and that I really did have a memoir that was waiting to be written. And so I sort of stumbled into it accidentally. It was sort of the story that had to be written rather than my desire to write a book. Right. Well, that's I mean really interesting to think about, and and I you know I couldn't tell that these that this story this memoir began as poetry because it feels so um, right in the genre that it exists in. Um, oh, thank you. Well, that's that's nice. It was um, it was definitely a struggle, as the time frame might indicate, to find the right form and to even decide it was a memoir. I actually started out writing it as. Um, essentially a long journalistic uh, nonfiction piece. I really wasn't that involved in the story and certainly not um, to the degree of talking about my own family. That, that right. came later. Well, that's what I was thinking about too. There's a, there's a passage on page 242 where um, you say at the very beginning of a section that you said that, um, that you had been an excellent reporter before you met the family, the Shirzai's. Mm-hmm. Um, and you knew how to approach strangers and earn their trust and how to get into their secrets, but that you had gotten too involved with the family for the, for your stories to be, um, reporter like, I guess. Yeah. 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 And I actually did make that decision professionally. I sort of, at some point came back from Afghanistan. I finished the stories that we reported in Afghanistan and those came out and then I announced to them and to my editors, I said, you know, I don't think I can do this anymore for the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is my decision as a journalist. I've sort of reached the point where my own conflicts of interest are so great just on a emotional level. It wasn't about exchange of money or influence or anything like that. Right. But that my emotional investment was so great that I didn't feel it was fair to pretend to be a newspaper journalist and continue continue writing about them and they were okay with that decision and then I think that was when I started writing what I thought were essays but were, were really the early chapters of my book and I didn't really have a plan for them I thought okay I'll write an essay and just see what happens and then a second essay and a third essay and then mm-hmm. it grew you know and you know this is a, an something that I'm very interested in because as a writer of poetry, um, I kind of get the veil of being able to hide behind the speaker. But when mm. you're, when, <laughs> but when yeah. you're doing a memoir, there is no speaker. You are the speaker, you are the author. And so how did that sort of personal relationship with your stories and writing about your family, how did that affect you? It was very difficult. I think my training as a journalist was never talk about yourself. It is not about you. Mm. you your um, self-disclosure in public interferes with the telling of the journalistic story. Right. And I don't know if that's always the case. There are amazing magazine journalists and people who, essayists who I admire greatly, who I think were better able to tell the story because they brought themselves into it. But it's a very, 
tricky enterprise? And would I want it in all the news I consume every day? Probably not. But, you know, I love reading a Joan Didion because she just has this gift of bringing herself in just enough where you have an entry point into the story. Mm. And so I think I gradually inserted myself sort of first trying to be just the reader's entry point and then um, feeling like I had to answer some questions about why was I so attached to this family? Why at this time in my life was I completely sucked into their story beyond just an interest in current events or in Afghanistan or in telling a good journalistic tale that there was certainly more to it and I knew it and I think my readers uh, at the time you know who um, looked at my work or workshopped it or read essays that I published um, in the in-between time all felt that there was this burning question of well what was going on in your life that Mm. that pushed you here and uh, it was more than just, oh, I was assigned to by my editor. Right. So that became the start of it. And it was very difficult to imagine a day when I would have to confront my family and say, look, I'm writing about these things that have been very difficult for us and very private and that you probably don't want to share with um, <laughs> the reading audience of this book. And I did probably what a lot of writers did. I didn't really tell them what yeah. I was writing about um, until I was done writing it because I couldn't have that editing process in the head. I couldn't imagine the public manifestation of the book while I was writing very private things and I had to get it out of my system. But yeah, it was, it was, it went against probably every instinct I had to, to write all of that down. Not only and not only the the sort of what we consider to be an American um, privacy thing, but you have the dualism of being, you know, Chinese American, which I mean, from what I understand with Chinese culture, I mean, privacy and the admission of anything that's difficult is really not just is it taboo, but it's it's non-existence. It just doesn't exist. Oh, right, right. And I think the best example I use to. Uh, exemplify that in my own community was um, my my friend Johnny who was trying to come out his parents wouldn't let him come out because <laughs> their answer to him was there are no gay Chinese people we're, we're not talking about this <laughs> and just that ultimate so it's not even like oh don't you know don't air your dirty laundry because it's bad for the honor of the family which does happen but there is that but that complete denial like even if you try to to um, to embrace the truth that there's this sort of feeling of okay we're not we're just not going there we're going we're, we're going not. to build we're going to build this wall and we're not we're not crossing it you can you can try to jump over it if you want and that is that is one of the most interesting things that I experienced when I was in China it was it was like the first or second day that I, we, I, we were there and I was talking with students who were teaching us where the supermarkets were and you know really helping us get along and one of my students said she said two things that were quite shocking to me one was there are no gay people in China mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and the second was that she didn't know the difference between Mexicans and African Americans and so wow. I said, so, so, you know, obviously those are shocking, but it was this moment where I realized that there was um, a sort of cultural deletion that existed that I, that, that wasn't, that didn't exist in my culture. 
Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I guess in Mexican-American culture, we don't really talk about gayness, especially with the macho sort of maleness. But mm-hmm. it's not that it doesn't exist. It's just we don't talk about it. So I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's on a spectrum, right? And that maybe in um, Chinese culture or certain East Asian cultures that the there's the things that you talk about only in whispers, <laughs> right? And only in very private conversations. And then there's the things that you just deny that they exist. And, and even that space is a, is a big space. And I think for my family, it was really about getting from this, the jump from getting to the denial that something that my father's illness existed to the okay, we can kind of talk about it among ourselves in this very kind of pained and whispery way. Mm-hmm. And then to the space where we were finally able to say, you know what, we're just, we're going to own that this happened. And, and I think that it was not that my book caused that to happen. It was that it was starting to happen with my mother's evolution of uh-huh. thinking and our whole family's evolution that um, I felt freed to put my family in this story because she was reaching a point in her life where she said, you know what? I just, I don't care anymore. I don't mm. care who knows. And I'm going to use the word bipolar disorder or the mm. phrase and it's okay. And I'd rather, I'd rather just say it than pretend like, you know, that his behavior that everybody's observed is some weird, like, personality flaw or something like that. It's right. actually, it actually is more respectful to him to say he has an illness than to just say, you know, he's just a weird person or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. people would say about him. Right. Right. And that's, that's a really interesting um, thing to come to. And, and it's almost in its own way, very, a very American sort of mm-hmm. um, move, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And I think what happened to my mom when she started talking about it was that so many people in the community came to her very privately and said, oh my goodness, I'm so glad you talked about this. My husband is depressed and I haven't told anybody or I have bipolar disorder and I know it and I haven't talked to anybody about it. And it was this sort of weird coming out in... Uh, closed circles wow. and and even that's happened as I've gone and read the book I think probably about every you know five or six readings I've done somebody has approached me as usually an Asian American female mm-hmm. who has said this is like my father or this has happened in my own home wow. and we don't talk and we don't talk about it and it's really quite Amazing. The Asian American Literary Review is now engaged in an amazing project about um, Asian Americans and mental health, oh, wow. and um, and I think it's so it's so great that they're that they and many other organizations, but particularly a literary organization, is tackling this big silence in our community. Right. Well, that's really cool. And I mean, you know, these are these are things that are very interesting. And um, one of the things that was really interesting to me about your book and, and one of the things that I think about a lot is um, your discussion about this sort of 
virtual world, what I call the virtual world between being American, uh, what is often considered default white American culture and being mm -hmm. of another culture. For me, it's being Mexican or Chicana, but for you, mm -hmm. it's being Asian slash Chinese um, mm -hmm. and, and how existing in that in-between world gives you this position to sort of grapple both. Yeah. Yeah. And that there's, a, I think this isn't addressed enough in literature because we like to categorize, but that there's, there is a commonality between um, immigrant cultures or hyphenated cultures, however right. you want to describe them, that is not universal. Clearly, we have each our own experiences, and I can't say that I know what it's like to be a refugee from war or be the child of refugees from war, Right. but that that a very American experience of living between two worlds, of not knowing where home is, even if you were born in the U.S. as I was, that I always grew up feeling like I wasn't quite in the right place. Right. And it's a very odd thing to say when you're an essentially almost a native English speaker and uh, have never really lived permanently anywhere else. But I felt very much that... that um, in between state that um, not that neither here nor there existence. Right. And I mean, and you grew up in the Bay Area, right? Yeah. So even even amongst many other sort of Asian American cultures, it's still an alien alienating experience in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then leaving the Bay Area was alienating because <laughs> I hadn't realized that even in my um, occasional uh, or, you know, quite frequent discomfort there or feeling not quite um, at ease there and not really knowing why, that leaving the Bay Area was an entire other experience and um, it took quite a bit of adjustment. So, Well, I remember when I moved to Pittsburgh from California, um, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And uh, it was the first time in my life that I I was brown I because there was mm -hmm. a very black culture and there was a very white culture and there were very few brown people. And when I would see someone else who was brown, I didn't know whether they were Latino or what they were, but it was this very weird feeling that that suddenly I was a shade of skin color that didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't used to that in California. And so I, I'm sure you've experienced this too, although we are Americans in our in, in the way that Americans are, our phenotypes give us away and people don't know where to place us. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's been it's been so interesting in the current um um, you know, just, I don't even know what to call it. Like the, mm -hmm. the current, um, um, you know, events or the, mm -hmm. the kind of racial moment we're in right. that it's been, I think it's been really difficult for Asian Americans and, um, Latino Americans to know exactly where we stand in mm -hmm. the midst of this very, um, nece like necessarily black and white conversation right. that I'm not, disputing that Black Lives Matter doesn't need to be Black Lives Matter right. uh, for that particular conversation. But watching, um, uh, in particularly my own community, kind of try to figure out where do we belong here? Do we have a right to right. either uh, announce ourselves or support um, support the movement? And where do we stand? And it, it's been very painful. It's um, it's familiar, I think, to be erased from a racial narrative, and yet it's also important to acknowledge that black Americans have had an incredibly and really terribly unique 
history in the United States that can't be equated to immigrant cultures and to honor that and to acknowledge that and and um and Native Americans as well that that's right. a very a very unique history in a very um sad and profound kind of way yeah and it's I, I you know I, I completely agree with you I think in in many ways we're sort of on the sidelines watching this this sort of football battle and in, in, mm-hmm. in my opinion like going off and one of the things that I've learned or at least that I have insight to, which is that when I learned about the struggle of my own my my own identity, I learned it first through African American literature and through African American and Black um, literature, and yes. I think that was important to me because I saw that there it, it's almost as if their struggle, because they are sort of the older people here. Uh, not including Native Americans, but because they're yeah. the older people fighting for the kinds of mm-hmm. um, racial equality that they're almost the trailblazers. And yeah. so to sit by and be an ally and to say, okay, well, this is this is their time and I'm going to support it. Mm-hmm. And, and also, you know, it makes it difficult because a lot of times when I'm talking or writing about uh, the struggles of, of Mexican-Americans or laborers in the fields, I do equate it in some ways to slavery. And that's a really tough mm-hmm. thing to do because you have to be careful about how you use that terminology in the American context. Yeah. And so it's, it's, yeah. it is a very interesting thing to watch. And um, I'm in complete support. And I feel like you and I are both press mates at Willow, Willow Books, which is yeah. most of the writers are primarily black. And, and then mm-hmm. we're coming in as sort of this, this part of the diverse discussion. And I think it's yeah. interesting. It is. It is. And the 2013 Literature Awards was exactly the moment at which... Um, Willow Books expanded its um, its its um, scope. You know, mm. there was um, I think the idea was to go from a primarily African American press to having a contest that uh, was for all underrepresented voices, right. and that um, that there was a deliberate sort of expansion of the scope while still maintaining the the central mission that came out of um, organizations like Cape Canem and mm. and uh, Vona. And so uh, I was really, I was really excited and proud to be part of that. It was, it was a really great moment to have my book published, um, you know, period, like that, mm-hmm. just to have somebody who wanted to publish my book and make it, make it, um, make it come to fruition after nine years of really, <laughs> really hard work. Um, but also to be a part of that, to be a part of this amazing press that is more than just about, um, you know, putting putting work out there. There's a, there's a larger cultural and social mission. Absolutely. You're listening to KKUP Cupertino 91.5 FM in the Bay Area and beyond the Bay at kkup.org, where we're streaming live all over the world. Uh, Tonight's interview is with Angie Chuang, who's the author of The Four Words for Home out of Willow Books, which is a memoir, a dual memoir about an Afghan family, Afghan-American immigrant family that she followed uh, right after 9-11, as well as her experience in her Chinese-American family. Um, so if you're, you know, if you've never listened to us before, then you don't know that KKUP is completely listener supported. We don't get any underwriting. We don't have any grants. We are completely supported by the people who listen to us. And every week from eight to 9 PM, I get to do a poetry radio show. And I think that that's really important. And public radio 
as we know, as the world gets bigger and bigger and things start getting um, more controlled in certain areas, um, public radio that's supported by people who listen to it is so unbelievably important. So if you'd like to become a member of KKUP and support us, we'd absolutely love it and totally welcome you to the KKUP family. So you can go to kkup.org and click the button that says join now and you can become a member. If you don't want to go online and you're listening maybe at your home or in your car or something, well, if you're in your car, you have to pull over to make a call, but I'm here in the studio and I'll answer the phone. So the phone number is 408-260-2999 or 831-255-2999. So give us a call here at KKUP. Um, here's back to the interview with Angie Chuang. And I think it's, um, you know, I mean, I, I've talked about this with other uh Pressmates as well, and the energy that exists at the readings for Willow Books are, are just—I mean, it's just—it's un—it's—it's it's unmatched in my opinion. I mean, I haven't—I haven't been able to go to a reading in the past ten years without feeling a little frustrated and tired of listening to the same same kind of voices or the same kinds of stories. But I'm almost never disappointed when I'm at a Willow Books reading. I agree. I agree, and and I think just the. The energy between the readers too, and the camaraderie is really, is really something, something special. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, so I wanted to get back to your book a little bit. So how did sure. you? I mean, so how did you end up going to Afghanistan at this time in two thousand four? Right. Yes. Yes. Um, it uh, came out of um, essentially post nine eleven newspaper coverage. So mm-hmm. at the time, uh, I was. The uh, my official job at the Oregonian, I had been hired to be the race and ethnicity issues reporter. That was the that was the beat, and it was something that cool. I had been wanting to do at a newspaper in the country. I'd been kind of looking for that job. That was something right. I, I didn't think it would be in Oregon. Oregon was a surprise to me because I had spent a summer there doing an internship. But in my mind, as somebody who grew up in the Bay Area, Oregon was this very white state, right. and it was not a, um, a center of diversity. It wasn't somewhere where I imagined myself writing about race issues. Right. I had uh, written for the LA Times, and that was sort of my my fantasy, like yeah. you know, coverage area because every story was about race, whether you you <laughs> could help it or not. And so I had the opportunity to do this, and I started doing some research and talking to people in Oregon. And the thing that fascinated me about Oregon was that statistically or demographically, Oregon was exactly where California had been in 1960. Oh. But it was, it was 2000. Mm. And so how do you add that the, a lot of the same movements that changed California were starting to happen in Oregon, uh, that a lot of the immigrants who had started in California and realized that maybe there were better jobs or less competition in Oregon started moving up to Oregon. Mm-hmm. And as well as there was a pretty significant refugee population after um, the wars in Southeast Asia that had settled there and a small black population that had grown out of um, World War II opportunities for building, um, uh, for working in the shipyards. And, and there was a migration from the South that had settled there and stayed there. So all of these sort of competing forces um, and a significant Native American population, both urban and rural. Uh, so 
um, all of that was sort of adding to what had been uh, a longtime majority white population. So my pitch for the beat was that I wanted to see what would happen if a state transformed the way California did, but in the new millennium, post-civil mm. rights movement. Mm. And so I went there and really focused on um, Latino, Latina immigration. That mm. seemed to be, it was 2000, that seemed to be uh, what was going to be the big story. And um, then I had a big story come out about what we thought was a coming um, amnesty after uh, Bush and Vicente Fox had met and talked about immigration reform. Right. And I had a huge project come out on September 9th or 10th. There was ninth, September 9th, 2001. Mm. My big project on uh, on people who had received amnesty mm. in the 80s and what became of them and how this might project forward came out. And then on, uh, I think it was, we said on the 11th, on the morning of the 11th, my editor and I had a meeting to talk about next steps about covering this story, right. about changing Latino immigration in Oregon. And we never had that meeting because, yeah. as you know, the attacks <laughs> happened. And I was really at a loss because I had, I had been living in Hartford, Connecticut right before that. And I was very connected to New York City. I spent a lot of time in New York City. And I felt so disconnected all the way in Portland, Oregon. I didn't know how to mm. access the story. I was sad and frustrated by a lot of things, as many people were. And um, I think around that time, I was just sort of trying to figure out how I was going to cover this. I had been writing about some anti-Muslim hate crimes, which was disturbing. Yeah. And my editor came to me, as I describe in the book, and said, I... He basically said, I want you to find an Afghan immigrant family. But the way he said it was, uh, you have to find a human face for the country we're about to bomb. Uh, yeah. And, which is what we do in journalism. He was right. He was um, describing exactly what newspapers do. And I started seeking an Afghan immigrant family, which is more difficult right after something like 9-11 than you'd imagine. Many people didn't want to be public because of the consequences of of um, being publicly Afghan at a time right. like post 9-11. So I eventually found the Shirzai family and that's, um, I started writing about them and they started talking about, well, you could come with us to Afghanistan if you really want to see what this is like. And I couldn't. I couldn't say no to that invitation. <laughs> that's, that's, and then we built it into a reporting trip that we right. would do, be doing stories for the newspaper um, while we were there. Right. And and you, in the book, you talk about your mom sort of not not being um, very reactive about you going to Afghanistan, that, that this was sort of, it was it was so part of your personality to, mm -hmm. to take this kind of risk or, I mean, what some would describe as a risk going into yeah, Afghanistan yeah. after, you know... So, so yeah, what was that like? Um, you know, looking back now, it may have been, it may have been that she sort of accepted that this was just the kind of thing I would do and that <laughs> I would figure out a way to get out of it alive. And she says that she says, you know, I knew that I wasn't going to talk you out of it. And this is just how you've been and that you would be okay. And that it wasn't that I wasn't worried. I just knew I couldn't stop you from doing this. <laughs> And and maybe it was that she had her own she had her own problems and her own issues to be consumed by, and maybe there wasn't enough bandwidth to <laughs> stage something intervention. Uh, so, so, which is probably better 
in the long run. But um, um, yeah, it was. Um, I, I was actually surprised at how little resistance I got from uh, both friends and family. I, mm. I think from the moment I met this year's eyes and I started writing this story and I was spending so much time there that people saw that this was sort of where I, I think a lot of people had to funnel their, their energies, um, you know, negative energies that came out of 9-11. And, you know, for some people that was joining the military, for some people that was, um, you know, becoming uh, jingoistic and right. <laughs> xenophobic. Mm-hmm. And for me, this was a place where I felt I could place my energies was really about not just writing about this culture and this family and telling this story, but also learning about it myself, that I really felt like I needed to understand the country we were bombing and that it was personally important to me to understand as much as possible. Yeah. What what kinds of, um, I mean, maybe maybe we should go into the book. I mean, do you have any passages ready to read? Sure, sure. Um, I thought I could read uh, basically the story that made me want to read the, uh, write this book, okay. which was the one that I mentioned about um, the women. Um, so there's a um, I I won't go. I think I think I'll leave as um, a surprise the story about them trying to marry me off because <laughs> this this chapter um, called "Learning to Pray." ends with them, uh, the um, women who I stayed with in Afghanistan, deciding that the best way to, to show, um, to honor our, um, our friendship that we developed and the fact that they felt like I could have been a part of their family was to offer to have me marry their brother, that that was, <laughs> that was the ultimate gesture. And the uh, title of the chapter comes from uh, me telling her like, oh, no, no, I can't marry your brother because I'm not Muslim. That's a really big <laughs> deal. And she said, oh, it's not a big deal. I'll teach you how to pray. And then <laughs> and then the rest will come. And that, you know, like little things like that surprised me so much that to me, I kind of treated Islam as this very sacred thing that people mm. must take incredibly seriously. And that, um, that just like we would say the same thing about Christians in the U.S. or Catholics, mm. that that um, you know you would meet Catholics who would say you know you could only be Catholic through you know either being born into this culture or having generations of your family be in this culture, or right. you must take it incredibly seriously and know everything there is to know about Catholicism before you can. And go to mass all the time before right. you can call yourself a Catholic. And there's other people who say, "Yeah, you know, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll, um, <laughs> you know, I'll rosary, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> I'll, I'll teach you the Lord's prayer, and you, yeah. you're good to be good. You're good right? to go. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, so I really love just seeing the different manifestations of um, of how people perceived or embraced Islam, well, and you know. That's really interesting that you say that because I I just, I mean, I think that that, that's sort of a Western perspective that Islam is this sort of like sacred, very unknown thing. And so to imagine that someone could so passively be brought into the culture and a family, not passively, obviously you created a relationship, but in this very like, I'll just teach you to pray. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, in truth, she was somebody who was in her own way quite devout and she did, she did pray most of the five prayers a day and um, and I think had a very deep spiritual life. And so it wasn't to dismiss her view of religion, but right. that 
in in practice in in relationship that she could sort of you know say something so casually and and I think you know looking back I think it was that there was a bit of sort of naivete of saying like this is the best way I know how to bring right. you into my family and then probably a deeper understanding that this probably won't work out but hey you know like let me mm-hmm. let me use the mediums of exchange that are available to me to mm-hmm. try to send you a message that, that to me this is more than just a reporter coming to our house for a few weeks. Well, that's kind of beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I was very touched by it. And so that inspired me to write the first essay that became this um, middle chapter in the book. And it's still one of my favorite Great. chapters. So I thought I would maybe, um, in terms of a reading, that maybe I would just start with um, the beginning of the chapter because it's a little easier to enter and it's kind of um I I think it's um it's it's humorous and charming about the um the women in the house and how they um lived and their views on men and dating and or dating as as much as it existed in um in Kabul Afghanistan okay uh, which is very different than the dating um I was used to doing in the United States (laughs) And so uh, I'll read the beginning of the chapter, um, Learning to Pray, and uh, I usually make a few um, few edits in the reading just to make it go a little more smoothly. So okay. um, this is in the house in Kabul, and I am there with um, Stephanie, who's a uh, photojournalist I've traveled with, and uh, Layla is the Afghan-American um, who is sort of our, uh, she's literally our interpreter, but she's also the member of the Afghan-American family who has traveled with us mm-hmm. and um, is sort of there to, to accompany us and help us out. And then we're um, staying with these two uh, sisters-in-law who uh, live in the house named Roshana and Nazo. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's um, what you need to know to, to enter this passage. Okay. So The yellow door was made of wood that felt too light. Every time we, the Americans, Layla, Stephanie, and I, swung it open, we pulled or pushed too hard, and it flailed wildly on its hinges, back and forth, back and forth. It had a large, crooked black English letter painted on it. What does the K stand for? Stephanie asked, puzzling at it like it held a secret code. Rishana smiled. It stands for kitchen. Our laughter echoed through the room. This was our space within the cobble house, the place where the five of us young women had spent the most of our waking time together. The sisters-in-law, Roshana and Nazo, enjoyed the company as they did their chores. It was not a kitchen for the faint of heart. Cobble's endless dust blew in, necessitating diligent sweeping. Hot air made it stuffy. The cold air chilled it. That wily calico watched the pile of flatbread tucked under a cloth diving into it the moment it went unmonitored. The stove was two waist-high butane tanks in the corner with burners on top of them. The women wrenched the tank's handles, waited for them to hiss for a while, then lit a match from a large box and threw it at the burner as eyebrow-high flames burst to life with a deep thump. Roshana and Nazo calmly stepped back and then sidled up to the fire, twisted the knob until the flame was low enough to cook on. The men had their own spaces, such as the saloon or sitting room, where the family would discuss and make important decisions. But the kitchen was the women's space, specifically 
the younger women's. Amina, uh, the mother-in-law, rarely went in. Nazo, Amina's youngest child and only daughter, now had the company of Roshana, who had just married Nazo's brother. So there were enough hands in the kitchen for Amina to enjoy the fruits of being the matriarch and leaving the cooking and cleaning to the younger generation. The men, though not forbidden there, usually steered clear. The kitchen was a place where secrets could be shared with little worry that someone would walk in and overhear. In the kitchen, Roshana and Nazo could be themselves. As sisters-in-law, Roshana and Nazo's relationship bore far greater importance and closeness in Afghanistan than it typically would have in the United States. Roshana had moved a year ago from Pakistan to wed Nazo's brother, Ayub, in a union arranged by their families. The two young women did all of the cooking and most of the housework together. They spent more time with each other than with anyone else. They moved in the kitchen with practice synergy. Roshana, with her liquid brown eyes and straight black hair, was serene and serious. Nazo's startling green eyes had an impish glow, and her curly dark hair was always trying to escape from her chador. They chatted, bickered, and laughed with such ease. I sometimes wondered if Roshana's marriage had been arranged for her compatibility with Nazo, as well as with Nazo's brother. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to skip a bit in the interest of time. That's fine. And um, just say that um, we have a developing um, intrigue where uh, Nazo, the younger single sister, has spotted um, a young man she likes in um, in a wedding video. <laughs> and, um, and the women and men couldn't be in the same room during the wedding. They danced in separate rooms, but then she got to watch the wedding video, her sister-in-law's <laughs> wedding video. And she spotted this guy in the men's video who she liked the way he danced, she liked the way he looked, and he was wearing these bright yellow pants. So she's now <laughs> decided to call him um, Yellow Pants. And, and she's talking about um, having a crush on Yellow Pants. And, um, and meanwhile, Roshana's husband is um, doing work with um, a, an NGO. A lot of people got jobs with them after the beginning of the war. And so he spends a lot of time. He spends a lot of time on the road. Okay, so um, so now I'm talking about uh, I've kind of skipped ahead, and I'm talking about the um, pop, the wild popularity of Titanic after okay. <laughs> after the Taliban fell. Okay. They watch Hollywood movies, but even those were viewed through the lens of their experiences. After the Taliban were overthrown and movie theaters returned to Kabul, Titanic was a runaway hit because the tale of early 20th century romance felt almost like an early 21st century Afghan one. Mm. A young, upper-class woman, Rose, is forced by her family to marry a man from her social class, but falls in love with Jack, a poor man of whom her family disapproves. Even the unhappy outcome, the two lovers are parted eternally by the shipwreck, rang truer to Afghans than the typical Hollywood fare. Love conquers all endings seemed unrealistic to them, disaster they understood of course the version that was shown in Kabul theaters was censored scenes that american audiences came to think of as titanic signature moments jack sketching rose in the nude or the two lovers fogging up the windows or a fiance's renault were unceremoniously deleted mm-hmm. roshana and ayub's wedding had been less than a year ago and she was now entering her second trimester of pregnancy her live body just beginning to show under her shalwar kameez. Did she miss her husband? Yes, she said, sighing. But when he comes back, it is very nice. A coy smile played on her face. Very nice, I asked. Very nice, she repeated, looking down and blushing. 
She straightened herself up. Now I must go do the laundry and breezily took leave of me. As she swung open the kitchen door, she glanced over her shoulder with her big brown eyes and winked. Then the door swung back and I couldn't see her anymore. Mm-hmm. A couple days later, Roshana skipped her usual afternoon nap, dragged Nazo into the kitchen to prepare an extra elaborate dinner. They had gotten fresh beef from the butcher earlier that day. Then Roshana took a shower, picked out a new outfit, a soft pink shawar kameez, then put on perfume, makeup, and tried on five different chador before settling on one. As we all sat in the kitchen watching her put the finishing touches on dinner, I caught her eye. You're nervous today, I said, and pretty. Engineer, she said, using the family's nickname for her husband. The Pashto word for engineer, which sounded like the English word for engineer, was used to describe an educated man, is coming home today. Then, turning to me, so only I could see it, she took her delicate hand, balled it into a fist, and bit down on her pinky knuckle. She gasped softly, feigning breathlessness, grinned at me, and then returned to stirring the stew. This was sexier than all of the deleted scenes in Titanic combined. <laughs> Nazo, on the other hand, announced to me that she was having friends inquire about the young man she saw at the birthday party she took us to. White suit, she said, her eyes dreamy. I remembered him. He was indeed wearing an all-white suit with a bright red shirt. He had a smooth face and was a flamboyant dancer. What about yellow pants, I asked. <laughs> she laughed. Yesterday... We had contemplated some questionable meat in the freezer after one of the city's frequent power outages. Even families well off enough to have refrigerators couldn't rely on them. I taught her the word expired, explaining the labels in American grocery stores that indicated when something should be discarded. Yellow pants, she said, flipping the end of her chador dramatically over her shoulder, has expired. That's so good. (laughs) So you can see why I really love being around these women. It was just like, it was like a moment like this every day, like something surprising, something hilarious, something really sort of heartwarming and and nothing that I had ever seen in any of the things I had read about Afghan women. Right. Which aren't, aren't many things, I think, in American culture. We don't really have this kind of insight. Yeah, yeah. I think our primary images, which are not entirely inaccurate or to be dismissed, were of a very oppressed population, of a population that had no voice, that had no agency, that needed Oprah and Laura Bush to come in and <laughs> throw their burkas off of them. Right. And right. <laughs> again, my my writing about things like this was not to dismiss the very, very real problems that women in Afghanistan face. And I saw many of them and they were they were crushing. I tried to write about them as I encountered them. But I also wanted to say that that there are women who have found a way within the structure of their culture to have some agency in their life, to have sexuality, to have joy, to have mm. uh, a way to um, think about their life partners and much as women in the U.S. do kind of strategize about how to find the best one and have a good marriage. Right. Yeah. And I remember I met this um, one teacher in um, in China who had he's an Englishman and he had taught all over the world. And we were talking about sort of the covered culture of Islam. 
And he said, oh, you don't have to worry about all of that. He says, those women have their own culture. He's, he's like, they have everything going on under there. And I remember first encountering that concept where like, of course, women in a different culture, even as though, even, even though we're given the concept that they're oppressed and, you know, all covered up. And this is the, this very American westernized sort of um, dismissal of their culture. Of course, they have these intricate and complex cultures Mm -hmm. underneath this sort of robe. Yes, and that the women were so close to the women in their lives Mm. in ways that I think transcended even the closeness of of women, close women friends in the United States. Like living in this culture that observed the separation between men and women also gave men a certain level of closeness that I think men often don't achieve in the United States, that you're really you're really building relationships around this sort of structure where maybe your your closest community might actually be the women around you or the men around you, and they help support your relationship with your uh, romantic partner, your life partner. And I'm not sure in the U.S. where we're so obsessed about the couple being everything or the nuclear family being everything. Right. that. And I kept thinking about, I actually didn't write this in my book because I don't think it occurred to me until after I wrote the book that had my my family had structures more like the ones in Afghanistan it probably would have been it, it not probably it would have been definitely a lot easier for my mother to deal with my father's illness right that she had to find her own support network after she divorced but while she was married that was not really available to her that's a really interesting way to think about it. And you know, this is this is why I'm grateful for your book. I'm grateful for it for a lot of reasons, but because my goodness, have you given your reader an opportunity to see two worlds? I mean, that that we don't often have the opportunity to see and the kinds of nuance in the story that is just not available. And so thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. And I know there's so many more. I mean, this was one family. It was a family right. that was very privileged in a lot of ways and and very limited time with this family. You know, it was um, so I don't claim to to own the entire Afghan uh, experience by any means. But to me, it was just important to share this window that I gained because it really opened my eyes to something that I that I had read and learned a great deal about and thought I understood and was still sort of rocked on my heels by the levels of complexity I, I experienced. Well, I think um, Gwendolyn Brooks in an interview said that, um, I guess someone asked her if she thought that she spoke for, you know, all of black Americans. And, and she said, no, of course not. I'm only a piece of a larger picture. And I think that's true for your work and any writer who's writing about things in whatever capacity that they feel, you know, they can with authenticity and with kindness um, you're providing this sort of tile in the mosaic of the American story or whatever is available to us in America, which is, yeah, very, which is important. So, and I think as writers, that's all we can really do, right. right? That we're bringing things down to that. If, if a social science researcher takes things at a macro level and aggregates the larger experience to come to these big conclusions, then, we as poets and memoirists um, and writers can only take it down to this micro level and 
help people experience things on the most intimate of levels that this is one this is one person's view of another individual's experience and it's necessarily incredibly subjective but through through this act maybe we reach you at a different level right right well you're listening to KKUP Cupertino 91.5 FM in the Bay Area and beyond the Bay at kkup.org. Tonight's show was with Angie Chuang, who is the author of The Four Words for Home out of Willow Books. Um, so thanks for listening. I hope you listen again next week. I will have live guests next week, and we'll be talking about Poetry Center San Jose's big poetry festival in the History Park um, that's coming in September. So I'm going to leave you with some Elliot Smith and get ready for Joe Soja and the Ethnic Connection. Got big fingernails and a head full of the past. Everybody's gone at last. Sweet, sweet smile. Let's fade in fast Cause everybody